right now, there's a slow-motion disaster playing out essentially everywhere you look, with few players in the US and connected markets in particular escaping unscathed. After having injected about $15 billion into metaverse-related efforts, few of which have become anything more than minor blips on the cultural radar thus far, Facebook parent company Meta, which was formerly just called Facebook but the name was changed to symbolize this reorientation of purpose as well, has laid off about 13% of its total workforce around 11,000 people who were booted in part because that big investment didn't pay off at a scale or as rapidly as Meta founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg thought it would. Amazon recently announced they would be firing approximately 10,000 people, primarily from their devices, retail, and human resources divisions, representing about 3% of their total corporate workforce and only 1% of their overall employee base. But this was still their largest ever round of job cuts, and an anomaly during the usually quite profitable and stable holiday shopping season, during which the company doesn't want to do anything to upset the income apple cart. Twitter has been going through a period of immense and dramatic flux, having recently been acquired by Tesla and SpaceX founder Elon Musk, against his ultimate wishes, as it turns out, but the company higher-ups forced him to go through with an earlier deal that he tried to back out of when the market shifted and tech company valuations dropped, essentially overnight, and his tenure at the helm has at times been described as an omni-shambles, a word more typically reserved for British politics which maybe gives you a sense of just how confused and ineffectual it has been up till this point. Musk kicked things off by firing about half the company's workforce, reportedly around 3,700 people, followed by a culling of the company's contractors as well, eliminating somewhere around 4,400 of its 5,500 contract employees, severely diminishing the company's ability to perform certain tasks. He then presented the remaining employees with an ultimatum, telling them to click a button, basically, if they agreed to become a lot more hardcore, in his words, to work long hours, early mornings, late nights, weekends, to build Twitter 2.0. And the numeric outcome of that gambit has not been announced as of the day I'm recording this, but early reports are that only about a quarter of the remaining staff decided to stick around, instead opting to take three months' severance. This will have the effect of trimming the company's costs substantially, eventually at least, once all those severance packages are paid out, and new strategic hires can be made to replace the reportedly vital workers who were fired or who left following these first tumultuous few weeks with Musk at the helm of the company. But it has also raised serious questions about the overall health and staying power of the platform. Many people I follow, on Twitter at least, who are mostly experts in various fields I'm interested in, have started retreating to the lifeboats of other networks, their own sites and newsletters, assuming that the platform will begin to degrade in quality, become unusable, or maybe just not be there when they wake up one day in the near future. And a lot of folks in the tech world seem to be assuming that no one will want to work for Musk at any of his companies following this seemingly ham-fisted, mistake-laden, self-sparked acquisition stumble. Payments company Stripe 
laid off more than 1,000 employees in early November. Netflix laid off nearly 500 in recent months. Fintech company Robinhood fired nearly a quarter of its staff in August, its second wave of layoffs in the second half of 2022 alone. Digital mortgage lender Better undertook its fourth round of 2022 layoffs in November. Salesforce made redundant hundreds of people, but fewer than 1,000 apparently in mid-November, according to company communications. Twilio laid off 11% of their total workforce in September, and even Apple, the highest-valued company in the world, has implemented a hiring freeze alongside slashed budgets, effective through late 2023. There are company-specific variables with some of these firing waves. Twitter, for instance, has a new owner who seems very keen to cut expenses down to the bone, whatever the consequences. That's a generous read on what he's doing, at least. But there are some broader-based variables that seem to be triggering some of these moves, beginning with the perhaps justified fear of an impending recession, globally but also closer to home for most of these companies in the U.S., and that's nudged them into a different stance, more inward-facing and pulling back from expansion mode and into survive-the-winter mode. Thus, they are cutting costs, they're trimming fat, and they're no longer as concerned about what the market will think if they offload a bunch of employees all at once. In a pre-recession period, that looks financially responsible, rather than serving as an indication that the company might be having economic troubles, as may otherwise be the case during a non-recession period. Up till now, grow, grow, grow has been the name of the game, but that no longer looks as responsible. And that growth-focused mentality, which has been fairly consistent for the past decade or more, has been predicated on a post-2008 economic collapse climate of low interest rates, which makes debt cheap and easy to acquire, which in turn means investors can borrow and then plow gobs of money into business entities that look like they have their best years ahead of them. Many investments in tech companies are based on a valuation that you do not see in other industries. Healthcare and brick-and-mortar commerce companies, for instance, are often happy to receive a market valuation, which takes future earnings into account, of about twice their current actual value. Tech companies, in contrast, tend to see valuations that are 10 or 20 times their current value, which implies that they are in growth mode now, but will someday be able to flip a switch and suddenly be just massively profitable, far beyond their growth mode potentiality. What seems to be happening is that investors are pulling back on those valuation assumptions, no longer looking at Meta or Twitter and assuming they will someday be worth 10 or 20 times what they are today, and that is in turn tanking these companies' stock prices and investment opportunities. That means they need to actually make more money because they can't just bring in another round of investors to cover their expenses. And tossing a recession into the mix means folks are even more pessimistic about investment options, retreating to safer havens, and not spending or expanding as much as before, which in turn reduces these tech companies' options still further because they can't sell as many products, services, or ad placements. What I'd like to talk about today is another tech-related sub-industry that's seeing a sort of collapse stimulated in part by those larger market and economic conditions, but amplified by the fall of industry heroes and entities that until just recently seemed to be pillars of stability, reliability, and durability. You 
are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. There are several core types of crypto asset, crypto referring to cryptography, which means these assets are generally protected by complex math, which allows aspects of the structure underpinning it to be protected. And most of these assets are predicated on scarcity, enforced by that cryptography. So Bitcoin and Ethereum are cryptocurrencies that are valuable because they are finite, scarce, and people have decided to provide goods and services in exchange for them. Bitcoin and Ethereum are speculative sorts of crypto assets because they ebb and flow in value, which means you can potentially buy low and sell high, earning a profit. Though you could also conceivably buy high and sell low, losing money, though probably not on purpose. It's a gamble. A bit like a share of stock, but again, these things are not tied to anything else. So it's really enthusiasm for the crypto asset itself that you're hoping goes up. Because that, rather than valuations based on other market conditions of a certain company's assets, for instance, tends to be what makes the price on these crypto assets go up. There are other types of crypto asset, though, including NFTs, which are typically similar to Ethereum and sometimes even based on that crypto network. But rather than just being a line of numbers, they have some kind of media attached to them. Or in some cases, they just link to a piece of media that the owner of the relevant token then theoretically owns in some legal or non-legal assumed way. And then there are stable coins, which are crypto assets that are artificially pegged to real-world fiat currencies or other tangible valuables, like the price of gold. Tether, for instance, is a stable coin that is tethered to the price of the US dollar, and it should always ideally, if it's functioning correctly at least, be worth exactly one dollar. One tether can thus be exchanged for one USD if you use the proper intermediary service. Back in the early days of Bitcoin and proto-crypto enthusiasm, finding people who would accept these crypto assets in exchange for stuff in the real world was rare, so crypto exchanges began to pop up all over the place. The idea of a crypto exchange is that, much like you can go to a currency exchange and trade dollars for yen or euros, you can sign up for a crypto exchange and swap dollars for Ethereum or Bitcoin for Tether, and then keep those assets in your account, shuffling them around, trading one for another whenever you like. The value this type of service provides is, at times, faster and easier and less trackable through conventional means transactions. But it also allows you, if you're keen to do so, to speculate, to gamble on these crypto assets, buying Bitcoin when you think it's primed to go up, and otherwise retreating, maybe with a profit, maybe not, back into something like Tether, which you know will hold a steady value over time compared to the rest of the real world fiat-based market. The third largest crypto exchange by volume, up until a few weeks ago at least, was called FTX. Typically, you wouldn't spend too much time concerning yourself with the third largest platform of this kind, because there are two others that are larger and, by many metrics, more impressive and relevant. But in this case, FTX was founded by a guy named Sam Bankman-Fried, usually called SBF, and he made himself and his work incredibly relevant and well-known beyond the typical bounds of a crypto industry entity. Initially, SBF founded a company called Alameda Research, a quantitative trading firm, much like the ones that use complex formulas and math to make smart trades on the stock or currency exchange markets. But this company was focused on figuring out clever arbitrage opportunities in the crypto world. 
He founded FTX, that aforementioned third-largest crypto exchange, a few years later, and these two entities allowed him to amass a large fortune, but also gobs of influence within the crypto world. He positioned himself as kind of the knight in shining armor, bailing out smaller and failed crypto projects, helping folks get involved in the space, and eventually serving as a kind of ambassador for crypto to the rest of the world, especially the business and political world. That latter point is important because up till this moment, leading into the COVID pandemic, crypto entities were kind of niche and fringy, seeming to everyone outside of that subculture like just a series of scams and cons. And many of them were and still are that. But SBF set things up so that his work and his associated entities seemed like the friendly, regulatorily enthusiastic, plays well with others version of the same. He sold governments on the idea that crypto was valuable beyond all the scams and weirdness and reinforced this message by plowing a whole lot of money into political campaigns. More heavily for the Democrats here in the U.S., but his business partner did the same for Republicans, alongside all sorts of political and ideological causes, including many that are broadly palatable, which endeared him and his work to a lot of people, like former presidents and prime ministers who might not otherwise care or even bother trying to understand what he was saying and doing. SBF has long been involved in a philosophical movement called effective altruism, which is not a monolithic concept, but in general it means focusing on somewhat utilitarian outcomes and figuring out the best leverage points to achieve those outcomes. So rather than donating one's time to a soup kitchen to help the poor, you might decide to make gobs of money so you can throw all that money at the problem instead, giving folks direct deposits, building new soup kitchens, and improving the systems that are currently overburdened and inefficient that are making food too expensive for people to afford in the first place. There are elements of effective altruism, or EA, that most people would probably agree with, and other components that seem a little heartless and beneficently sociopathic to some. But it's generally thought, based on what SBF has said and done at least, that EA concepts drove him to create business entities that would allow him to make billions of dollars, which would in turn allow him to funnel the majority of that money into problems that needed solving. And by all indications, he did tend to do this, giving away vast sums to all sorts of causes over the past several years. And that was true to a lesser degree, even before he started up Alameda and FTX. So headed into the pandemic, a lot more people got into the world of crypto, and entities like FTX blew up, while opportunities for entities like Alameda also increased. There was a boom across this industry, leading to what some thought of as the obvious next step for a brilliant set of technologies and financial tools, and to what others saw as irrational exuberance over a new method of separating folks who don't know any better from their money, while selling them on the idea of getting rich quick. The latter case, at the moment at least, in late 2022, seems to have been closer to the truth on this, unfortunately. Crypto assets have tanked alongside everything else, especially tech stocks, which has led to speculation that those amplified 10 and 20x valuations for tech stocks in particular have served as a sort of speculative asset for some investors, similar to Bitcoin and Ethereum and the like. Whatever the truth of that might be, stocks tanked. Crypto assets 
tanked. And to mangle the words of investor Warren Buffett, the economic tide went out, which allowed us all to see who was wearing swim trunks and who was swimming naked. The tide left early for quite a few crypto entities, leaving their assets devalued, at times 100% value less, and their corporate entities collapsed. Though often the folks at the top got away with at least some of the wealth they captured from those who put money into their tokens or platforms or whatever else. Some of these entities stuck around a lot longer, including many of the largest crypto exchanges, including the number one biggest exchange, Binance, but also number three, SPF's platform, FTX. That is to say, it stuck around until early November of 2022, when a balance sheet from Alameda Research was leaked, showing what appeared to be a heavy reliance on what some in the industry not so politely call shitcoins, meaning low-value or valueless crypto assets, alongside a whole lot of FTT crypto tokens. FTT is a type of crypto asset used by exchange platform FTX to basically manage transactions within the platform. So FTT has value because FTX uses it to conduct business on their exchange. The CEO of Alameda, Caroline Ellison, who among other things was off and on romantically involved with SBF, which may or may not be relevant to what happened next, put out a statement saying that the numbers were only a slice of their overall holdings, and no one should be alarmed, everything is fine. Later that same day, though, the CEO of Binance, Chongpeng Zhao, often called CZ, announced that Binance would be liquidating its FTT holdings, and they would do this in a way that would aim to impact the token's price as little as possible, but that divestment, carefully conducted or not, would flood the market with $2.1 billion worth of this token, which would have the net effect of reducing its price while also worrying people holding the token or using FTX because this would imply instability, that this other major player in this space didn't want to be connected to it and was divesting itself of so much of it. This, in turn, led to the crypto equivalent of a bank run, as FTX customers started to worry that there was something not right with the platform, and that they might lose all their investments, all the tokens that they were storing on FTX's platform, if they didn't get it out soon. As is the case with more conventional, real-world bank runs, the concern that there's not enough money in the vault leads to that vault being cleared out pretty quickly. And if there isn't enough money available on-site or with other banks that can then lend that bank money to cover what they don't have on hand, that bank has to close. It becomes insolvent. FTX purportedly had plenty of assets in their own accounts to cover the assets their customers put on their platform. That's kind of the base-level assumption here, as otherwise customers would have good reason to worry that if they don't take out their assets as soon as possible, they would be left holding the bag with losses if everyone else got there and took out their assets first. So this swirl of rumors and concerns led to an FTX bank run. That led to a liquidity crunch, which is what happens when a bank doesn't have enough money on hand to cover their customers' account balances when those customers try to take out all their money at once. And after declaring that FTX was fine and there's nothing to worry about, the next day, SBF announced that FTX was in trouble and would be selling itself to Binance, that aforementioned biggest of all crypto exchanges. They had made what amounts to a handshake deal to be acquired, so long as Binance would cover the difference between what FTX had and what it owed its customers. 
There were a lot of new revelations day to day during the following week, but the upside of all those announcements and divulgences is that Binance backed out of that agreement, saying that they couldn't help FTX because things were too bad, essentially, and the company was coming under government scrutiny as a consequence and that FTX had something like an $8 billion deficit that customers were owed, but that they did not have in the vault. What seems to have happened is that Alameda, which again is a company that tries to make money from the crypto market in clever ways, came up short when the crypto market started to drop in late 2021 and into early 2022. That drop, after the big pandemic surge, caught a lot of smaller investors off guard as well. But Alameda was not a small investor, and so it was caught way off guard, losing a whole lot of money in the process. FTX, it would seem, dipped into its customers' assets, took their money to loan Alameda money to cover that loss, which is not okay, but because the two companies and the people running them are so tight, they are people who are living together and dating, and essentially, it would seem, pooling their resources, to them, as long as the outcomes were positive, they could tap the vault, take out customer money, spend it to cover Alameda's losses, and then, once the market tipped back up into positive territory, they could make a bunch of money for themselves and then still be able to put that $8 billion back into FTX before anyone knows noticed. The continued market collapse, though, paired with the move by Binance, disallowed this potentiality. It may never have worked out that way in the first place, but they were caught with their hands in the cookie jar because of how things played out. The following week was brutal for FTX and Alameda and the many companies associated with these core companies. Essentially, everyone quit. Folks were calling out SBF and his associates for what seemed like either gross mismanagement and incompetence or outright criminal activity. And the veneer of, finally, here's a good guy who's not trying to con anyone in the crypto space that SBF had worked so hard to create seemed to slip and maybe even be permanently damaged. Even folks who had received huge payouts from SBF's ventures, including charities that had no way of knowing where the money was coming from, and celebrities and sports stars and politicians who had likewise been paid out to promote the service and positive crypto regulations and other elements of this larger plan to make gobs of money so it could be given out to various causes, they all peeled away from SBF's orbit and spoke out against what seems to have been a big, elaborate con all along. And we don't know if that was the case at this point. There's a chance that this was a big misunderstanding or that SBF was just incompetent. That seems to be the story that he's trying to tell currently. But there's a chance that that's just a legal tactic, as that could get him partially off the hook for the massive financial damages his companies are looking at right now. In either case, this collapse of FTF and Alameda and all their associated companies has shook the already shaken crypto space, leading to a flurry of other collapses and near collapses of crypto businesses and the redesignation of crypto-aligned stuff as probably scams, rather than potentially useful technologies and financial tools. There's also been a wave of finger-pointing over who is associated with whom, making the entire industry a bit toxic at the moment. 
In the midst of all this, at a personal level, SBF looks likely to have lost tens of billions of dollars in personal fortune essentially overnight. He's currently stuck in the Bahamas where his companies were based and where he's being monitored by the government as lawsuits and government investigations into his organizations and actions around the world spin up and pile up. And many of the people who previously celebrated him are now castigating him as a clever, maybe sociopathic con man who perhaps succumbed to greed and maybe became the very thing he seemed to be fighting against with all his donations and EA-associated activities, but who was maybe just using all that giving, all those donations, to shield malevolent intentions all along playing a role, basically, because it served him in achieving other outcomes, like the acquisition of power and influence and access. Crypto industry publication Coindesk has said that the worst is likely yet to come in the wake of this collapse. Binance and other industry stalwarts have said that they are fine, their books look good, but they are also having weak spots pointed out more regularly, and some of them seem to be built atop a house of cards that looks frighteningly similar to what buckled under the weight of FTX and Alameda. And there are rampant, widespread prognostications about how and when and how bad the eventual total crypto collapse taking down the whole industry will be. Not the first time such predictions have been made, to be clear, but financial world contagions are not uncommon when something like this happens, and the foundations underneath crypto assets and the businesses associated with them have long been even more fragile than those underpinning other types of financial entities, which have the oversight and support of real deal regulators and other government agencies. Looking around at the tech world right now, whether we're peering at the balance sheets of Binance or a more mainstream entity like Meta or Twitter, it would seem that there's a monetary reckoning landing hard across a space that, for the past decade plus, has been largely floating on clouds of optimism and folks with access to cheap debt willing to fund that optimism. These spaces could snap back suddenly if economic outlooks change in the near future, and central banks in turn decide to salvage what they can of their local economies, rather than continuing to do what they're doing now, which is basically chilling economic activity in order to trim inflation rates. There's a very good chance, though, that for the next year or two at least, the overall tech world and more speculative facets of that world in particular, like crypto, will be stuck in an industry-wide winter, moving more sluggishly, some of the weaker entities dying off, and someday, eventually, perhaps, emerging into a new springtime. But it's anyone's guess which of them will still be alive and ready to flourish if and when that happens, and what they and their products will look like at that point, if that time does eventually arrive. <music> The book I'd like to recommend today is called The Rise and Reign of the Mammals, A New History from the Shadow of the Dinosaurs to Us by Stephen Broussat. This book is written by a paleontologist who previously wrote a very well-regarded, though I haven't read it, book on the dinosaurs as a holistic group of animals. And this book instead focuses on the mammals and a bunch of new research and evidence that we have about how mammals emerged in the wake of the reign of the dinosaurs 
and what attributes of these early creatures allowed them to first cling to life, but then also spread out and diversify in the conditions of the world at that point, and what has in turn allowed those creatures, that group of which we are a part, to slowly but surely take over so many different niches, climactically and otherwise, across the planet. I think many of us already have pieces of this story, but it's interesting to read that narrative, really, from the beginning to the end, using the most up-to-date data available, and in a package that was written by somebody who clearly knows what they're talking about. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Rise and Reign of the Mammals by Stephen Broussant. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of my other work at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.